On today's show, the 2023 WBA draft has passed. The WBA season is a month away, so let's look ahead to the best prospects remaining in the college basketball landscape, whether that's 2024, 2025, or 2026 draft-eligible prospects. Lots of women's basketball starts now. Ogumba Wallet for the win! You are locked on women's basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball. Welcome. You are Ultimate Women's Basketball. My name is Senator Grizz. I'm a Saturday host covering the WBA draft and college basketball at large. Thanks for making Ultimate Women's Basketball your first listen every day. And remember, Ultimate Women's Basketball is free and available on all platforms, including YouTube. This, this episode is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sportsbook of Locked On. Make every moment more. Visit fanduel.com slash locked on today to get started. I'm joined by my co-host, M. Adler, and, and guest, Lincoln Schaefer. M is a BRF of Seattle Storm and heads our written coverage of the WBA draft at thenexthoops.com. Lincoln also covers the WBA draft and has a great eye for contextualizing prospects in their collegiate systems and breaking down the bio- biomechanical side of basketball. You can follow him at Dovienia underscore on Twitter. So before we get into this episode, M, I want you to explain this 2080 scale, how it works, and then how we're going to utilize it today to rank some of the best prospects in college basketball. I would love to. Basically, we at The Next, uh, when we try to figure out how to describe the way that we are ranking prospects and to be able to not only rank them against each other within a certain grouping, but be able to compare over year to year, is we use the 20 to 80 scale that comes from baseball. The basic concept of the 20 to 80 scale is that the number dead in the middle, 50, is going to be the average grade of a player in uh, who, who has made it to the majors. Uh, and at the WNBA level, that means it's, it's or at basketball, because it's a little different. We don't have minor league farm systems. We don't have sort of developmental pools as much as, as we have said on other pods on Lockdown's basketball, we would think it's a great idea to have some sort of developmental system for the WNBA outside of college. So that translates to about an average starter grade. It would be a, would be a 50, right in the middle of your 2080 scale. And what that does is as you go out from the 2080 and as you, or sorry, as you go out from 50 towards the end of the 2080, it becomes a normal distribution curve. So you have a certain percentage of players falling within uh, your um, 45 to 55 range and your 40 to 60 range. And then you have, any, and then you have uh, by the normal distribution curve, a significantly smaller percentage of players falling in each sort of 10 future, 10 value band uh, outside of that. Sometimes you'll hear this referred to instead of like, a 40 grade or a 55 grade, it'll be roll four or roll five and a half. So last year's draft, where did the players fall on, on the skill? If you have that with you. I do. Last year, uh, last year, um, we did not do this together, but uh, it ended up coming out to be that we had uh, Ryan Howard as a 65 future value Melissa Smith was a 60, Shakira Austin was a 50. Uh, and then going down from there, we had uh, 11 players at a 40 or higher, which means that uh, there were 11 players whose median outcome could be as a um, as a notable above average uh, rotation piece. 
what the numbers this, basically translate to. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, then this past season we had Olia Boston with a 70, Jordan Horston at a 50, and then we had like a tier lower. We had Diamond Miller at a 45. So everyone we're talking had, about. And we only had about uh, two or three other players at a 40 beyond those. And everybody and we're talking at today is on that level of 45 or higher. So, yep. so and, that's, and that's the point. That's the point of what we're doing here is looking beyond this because we've talked about how good the next couple of classes are going to be. We've talked about deferrals from this past class, and uh, myself, Jackie Powell, and Alex Simon did a podcast last week about what uh, Jackie deemed the super drafts in, over the next couple of years. So you know, the three of us decided to come down uh, together and look at just who's going to be in those classes. So for today, just to wrap up the Future Valley discussion, what you're going to hear in terms of our grades, um, we're going to hear basically between uh, 45 and 80, what those translate to are going up from 45. 45 is a top-end bench player, or about a about a, a sixth or seventh woman off the bench uh, on a playoff caliber team or a below-average starter. A 50 is an above-average rotation player or an average starter on a playoff contender. 55 is an, is an above-average starter. 60 is an all-star caliber player. 70 is an all-WNBA caliber. And 80 is an MVP candidate. And as, as future value grades, uh, a future value grade is what we are saying is a player's median outcome. Okay, so starting at 80, Lincoln, kick it off. Who is, who is the number? Who, we have one prospect at 80. Who is that? Yeah, um, that's Caitlin Clark. She's been the best offensive force in college basketball for her whole time at Iowa so far. Uh, she scores the ball at an incredible rate from all areas of the floor. She is one of the best passers in the country, and she has quietly improved a lot on defense and made huge leaps since her freshman year where she was um, part of an Iowa team that was abysmal defensively. Yeah, it's worth noting that statistically, Iowa's defense got a lot better this year than over the past couple years, basically entirely because of defensive rebounding. But as an individual defender, Caitlin Clark has really, when we talk about players who are on her offensive level, sort of the comps are, you know, Diana Taurasi, uh, uh, Trey Young, if he was taller, James Harden. Uh, Kobe Bryant at point. We're talking about a bunch of players who, for the most part, are just defensive seeds. At this point, she profiles as a genuinely helpful defensive player. She's got good help instincts. She's able to stick against drivers well, at least when she has the ability to to uh, pro- and want to to provide effort. And at the WNBA level, she's not going to be uh, running a 38, 40% usage rate. So there's a lot of projection in there that to, to be a genuine helpful defensive player, which is crazy. And a lot of that, talk about Caitlin Clark. A lot of that comes from her incredible positional size. Like you don't have that many primary ball handler prospects who come in at a, a legit six foot with length and with her kind of athleticism. And then at 70 plus, we have Janiah Barker. Then we also have Paige Becker's. Janiah Barker, six foot four, super versatile shot creator. Um, did you do you see her in person this season, M? What did you think from, from her? I did. I had the overwhelming pleasure of seeing Janiah Barker in person when Texas A&M came to Duke. Texas A&M 
one of the worst teams in Power Five basketball this year. Janiah Barker missed about two months uh, across December and January with uh, a foot injury. And in that time, a and played Little Rock, and they, I believe, beat them by about four points. This is, to the best of my knowledge, what that team looked like without Janiah Barker. On the other hand, with Janiah Barker, they, they, uh, they, I believe they beat Mississippi State. They were competitive against, or they were competitive against Mississippi State. They beat Kentucky in the in the SEC tournament. They beat Georgia. She was completely, almost utterly unstoppable as a shot creator outside of outside of the instances in which she just sort of had freshman moments, like. She played against LSU, and I believe she went three for nine or three for 11 shooting. But most of those were just her being defended by Angel Reese in the post. And again, as a freshman who missed two months in the middle of the season, and it was just getting the ball to the rim but not quite finishing, the things that she can do in the players and the defenders she made look absolutely silly. The things she can do as a passer in midair, as as a genuine perimeter shot creator at 6'4", who looked not great defensively let's say to start off the year and you know i i don't know where you guys fell quite on her defense by the end of the year but in the sec tournament she was just wrecking havoc defensively it's it is unbelievable what kind of impact she could have and then lincoln what did you see from Paige becker's um pre-injury yeah obviously Paige didn't play this last year but um She's an incredible player with the ball in her hands. Um, she makes really good passes, is a smart decision maker, and can shoot at a really, really high level uh, from anywhere from 15 to 24 feet. Uh, that's the kind of the thing that separates her from a lot of other primary ball handlers who play with uh, high usage and are looking to create their own shot is that she – makes a ton of these pull-up jumpers that she's taking from 15 to 18 feet that are usually uh, not really efficient shots, but if you're hitting them at 50 to 55%, then you can take as many of them as you want. And speaking of being efficient from that range, I mean, the the other 70 plus we have, and and again, 70 plus just means just a, uh, a tier above Median outcome as an, as an LWA big player. You know, we're we're not saying that on average they're going to be an MVP candidate, but they're probably going to come close at least. Paige Beckers. You know, speaking of that mid-range shooting, Paige Beckers genuinely might be the best mid-range shot mid-range shot creator of a prospect that we've ever seen. The things she was doing on basically one leg in the NCAA tournament as a sophomore were utterly insane. The and you add to that the three-point shot making she had as a freshman, what we know she's able to do with her proprioception and finishing and, and being able to find teammates and pass them open is ri- ridiculous. You know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I think for the most part, um, the main difference between her and Caitlin Clark is just that, you know, Caitlin Clark has the range as an off as an off-ball shooter, and we've seen sort of the level of difficulty she's able to get there, which it's just a more efficient shot than a, than a tough two. And also that, you know, Paige Becker's, I think, her freshman year projected to be a, a good defender at some point, where both her and Caitlin Clark, in my opinion, were kind of mediocre as freshmen. Caitlin Clark has just had more time to show that development. Yeah, for sure. So after the break, 
We'll continue going down this list, and the game there is Cameron Brink, so stick with us after the break to dive into her game. Okay. So at a 70 grade, we have Cameron Brink from Stanford, six foot four, big basically. She's versatile, sort of in the Chet, Chet Holmgren sort of vein in terms of she's not the most physically built force like at the center position compared to someone like Aaliyah Boston, for example. She'll roam from the weak side. She's more active, can uh, fluidly move in transition. So, and so with Cameron Brink, where are you at on the jump shot specifically? Because if the jump shot is there, we're probably talking about we're we're talking about that next tier in seventy plus. Oh yeah, I mean the jump shot is genuinely what made the difference between you know after their sophomore years. I had her above Paige Paige Beckers, and I think uh, you know quite a number of people I knew did. And it was kind of a tie between her and Caitlin Clark and. Um, the jumper just wasn't there this year, to, to say the least, at least from three. You know, she's still hitting excellently from the elbows and from and, and on the free throw line jumper. The it's it's not really a concern whether or not she'll be able to hit enough jumpers to like pull defenses out to respect her outside the outside the rim or outside the low paint. That's not really a question. If it was a question, we wouldn't be talking about a median outcome as an all WNBA player. The issue is really does the does the three point shot get back to where it was? Uh, at the end of her sophomore year. And I think there's a lot of reason, too, from her free throw shooting to, again, that long mid-range shooting. The form's really good. It's really consistent. Her footwork's great on it. If it gets there, then, again, she'll shoot up here. But, you know, beyond just being able to be be a good center, like, she played the four for Stanford this year almost exclusively. And, oh, boy, oh, boy, she can hold up as, as the four. And if you get that level of defense and that level of post scoring out of your four, that's that that is just incredible added value for a lineup. Yeah, the defense is really the reason that she's this high. It's honestly, it's some of the best rim protection I've seen out of a college player uh, anywhere. And her movement oh, skills yeah, at sure. six foot four are absolutely ridiculous. Uh, her timing's really good. She does have uh, the, the problem of a uh, really high foul rate. She's been in foul trouble a lot throughout her career. Uh, I don't know how much of that that you, you all attribute to, like, being 19 and playing college basketball, being 20 years old. But I think that I'd rather have a big prospect who's blocking everything but also fouling a lot than someone who's doing neither of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing with the fouling is – Ezzy Mabagor, she had a similar problem as well. That's like sort of a similar comp there where ultra-aggressive, sort of rangy forwards. They have forwards bigs. They have the athleticism to move fluidly. So the foul problem is honestly kind of a preference for me at the college level, just wanting to take risks. And that's Yeah, I also would have been lower on Brink than where we have it right now if it wasn't for the fact that the foul rate in terms of you know fouls per uh, per 100 possessions – had not, um, if that hadn't, you know, markedly improved every year significantly. If she continues on this path, she'll kind of only be below average by the time she graduates in, in Falbury, which is pretty remarkable for a player of her defensive impact. Okay, then the next tier we have at 60, we have Olivia Miles, Cody McMahon, and AZ Fudd. I don't know where you guys want to start here um, from this from this tier. 
I will start with Olivia Miles, who is a player who, if I have talked to you about college players over the past year, I've probably said something along the lines of the fact that if she gets an average to above average jump shot, she could be the best player in the world. I mean, the things that she is able to do, uh, her, her athleticism is out of this world. The things she does with her footwork and her handle to just embarrass the ever-loving crap out of the best defenders in, in the Power Five. The, the way she sets up her teammates with some of the most mind-boggling passes I have seen this side of Chelsea Gray. And even then, Chelsea Gray doesn't do it as many times per game as Libby Miles does at this level. It's absolutely ridiculous. And what you add beyond that is, first of all, ex- truly excellent at-rim finishing and foul drawing. But on top of that, we have a player who, you know, like Caitlin Clark, has genuine defensive tools and not just in help defense with the size that Caitlin Clark had, but for Livia Miles, we have someone who's actually, she's actually good at navigating ball screen. She's good at sticking to drivers and she's really, really good at, at disrupting the ball out of, out of on-ball players' hands. This is someone who could be, who, who could really be one of the best two-way players in the country just next year. Um, if she didn't, if she wasn't just so dang good at offense that you don't want to use her that much on defense. Yeah, she's one of the most creative guards that I've ever seen with the ball in her hands. She's uh, pulling out all kinds of moves and throwing ridiculous passes that you couldn't even conceive of. She's never uh, out of control or really rushed. And uh, occasionally that uh, creativity doesn't necessarily uh, lead to all positive outcomes but it, it is definitely a point in her favor moving forward as a prospect. And then Cody McMahon, she, she is a super unique player, six foot, uh, powerful force. She will push pretty much anybody to the ground um, on drives. So with Cody, she, she kind of broke out the season as Ohio State's best player uh, for most parts of the season, especially with J.C. Sheldon going out. And where do you where are you at on her game and like specifically where she can go with her developmental pathways? Because I don't think in many places you'll see her ranked this high, probably. The thing about Cody McMahon is that to start the year, she was pretty good for Ohio State. During Big Ten play, she was really, really good for Ohio State. During the NCAA tournament, she was, with maybe one exception, genuinely the best player on the court in every single game she played with maybe one exception. We're talking about a player who, you know, I had serious skepticism given, you know, the lack of jumper we had seen throughout most of the year on whether or not that could be something she added to her game. In her four tournament games, she shot about two and a half threes a game and made about a third of them, which making it the 30 or three is unexceptional. But when you are probably the probably maybe already the best in the country at driving and finishing. It is ridiculous what you can do with that. Again, uh, again, we're talking about elite offensive players who on top of that, she is an excellent, an excellent perimeter wing defender. Pl- Diamond Miller, when the, the two teams played, had a heck of a lot of trouble doing anything against Cody McMahon. The, the, she, it's just ridiculous. Not only is she stopping someone like Donna Miller, but when they played UNC, who plays through guards into the, into the post more, they don't have many wings to, to get after. She's active in help. It's not just the stats that you can see on the page, which do stand out. It's the rate of improvement throughout the season 
for someone who was 19 years old is genuinely mind-boggling. I think she might be 18, actually. I, I think she's the youngest player on our list. And see, that's the, that's the point right there. You, you don't think she is 18 years old on the basketball court. But moving forward, we have AZ Fudd. Throughout this season, I think me and Emma kind of said is one of the best off-ball players we've seen. And with with AZ Fudd, you just kind of see a scalable role. Someone I would describe as they can fit in any system, any context, just given the value of shooting. And with her, she has virtually no dip in her jumper. She's instinctive cutter as well. So Lincoln, where are you at on Fudd's game? And how how how, how does her injuries fit in with this? Just navigating how she projects as like a pro. Yeah, the injuries are concerning um and but i would be more concerned if uh she hadn't come back and immediately raised yukon's level of play in the ncaa tournament um her level of play early in the season was incredibly high she was hitting all kinds of ridiculous shots off screens running around the whole court and uh basically just making everyone's job easier on the offensive end because she's such a threat even without the ball in her hands. And that kind of skill set is so valuable for any basketball team at any level to have someone who uh, is able to create value without having the ball in their hands is just so important for a basketball team to have. My reputation as a hater precedes me. And the reason I say that is we're talking about a player who Hunter mentioned in the convention probably the best off-ball player, I mean, not probably, the best off-ball player in college basketball, probably already one of the handful of best off-ball players in the game of women's basketball, as it stands. The level of off-ball shooting and movement is ridiculous, and beyond that, her one-to-two dribble, uh, her one-to-two dribble pull-up jumpers off of pick-and-rolls, being able to attack uh, a tilted defense through cutting as well, it's frankly ridiculous how impressively she sees the game there. But the reason I mentioned my level as a hater is why do we have someone who kind of profiles to be frank as the best off-ball player in WNBA history, if she can stay healthy, why do we have her median outcome as only uh, all-star level? It's frankly because, and this might be attributable to the injuries so far, she's been a, she's been a big negative defensively so far. Teams, when they play UConn, especially in the tournament, they were going after her specifically, uh, putting her in a heck of a lot of pick and rolls. And for the most part, it was forcing a lot of hedges from Aaliyah Edwards. It was forcing a lot of switches uh, from the guards and wings that they just did not want to have to deal with as a team. It will be very interesting to monitor what happens next year with their starting lineup, because she could be starting at the two or the three in lineups that feature fewer plus defenders, frankly, than UConn was dealing with this year. But again, she has been injured significantly, and she's also super young, as are most players on this list. So we're not by any means saying that this is the, the defensive level she'll be at for the rest of her career. It's just I, I can't necessarily say that I've seen anything so far that makes me think that she's likely to hit a better outcome. And what's special about this tier so far of what we talked about so far in this episode is we can solidly say every one of these prospects has like a micro skill that is generational level where 
whether it's um, Olivia Miles' passing, whether it's Cody uh, McMahon slashing and able to get downhill, whether it's Cameron Brings' versatility, Caitlin Clark's deep shooting ability, AZ Fudd's off-ball value, there's many of these micro skills and areas that solidly make them super special prospects. And if you saw maybe either of me or M's tweets where we're like, if this player returns to school, they're going to be blah, 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 ranked this much lower than they would in 2023. It's just because there's so much generational talent. It's not that the players in 2023 are bad prospects. It's they just don't have these generational skills, which is what separates a good prospect from a great prospect. But after the break, we'll kind of go down the list into some of the best role player bets, some of the best like high-level starting caliber players that we have in college basketball. And we're back. I'm your host, Hunter Cruz, and I appreciate you for making Locked and Wins Basketball your first listen every day. Every dayers, join Missy Heidrick and Michelle Smith back on Monday to explore the state of the transfer portal in women's college basketball right now. I know I can't believe Celeste Taylor's in the transfer portal. Can you, M? Don't remind me. So, starting off this next tier at uh, 55 grade, we have Aaliyah Edwards. We also have uh, Layla Felia. We'll also have Tanaya Latson. So, just kicking it off, Lincoln, I know you're higher on Tanaya Latson in this tier. Yeah, Tanaya Latson was on a, a, another level for the first two months of this season. Uh, she was scoring 20 to 25 points every single game for Florida State. She is a walking paint touch, uh, and the jumper is coming along nicely. But the way that she gets into the paint is absolutely ridiculous for a freshman to be getting into the paint, into, under control, uh, finding shooters on the wings, and throwing really nice passes in the process. She's um, one of the best offensive players in the country for two to three months as a freshman coming in and playing her first college basketball. Uh, the way she came out of the gate was really awesome. and. She's incredibly athletic, and her um, lateral movement is one thing that really stands out to me, uh, especially with the ball in her hands, whether it's a Euro step, it's a, a hop step, something, some way. She's just finding ways to get to the rim, no matter who's guarding her and no matter uh, what team she's playing against. Not only is she an elite horizontal athlete, for your saying, but for someone who is gen- generously listed, at 5'8", she is an unbelievable vertical athlete. The hang time she's able to get in her finishes and the way she's able to hit and ones is genuinely like like ridiculous. She has at least three eye-popping finishes per game, and most of them are going to be and ones. There are players who can get to the paint, and then there are players who can get to the paint and finish, and she is the latter. And then Aaliyah Edwards at UConn. For me, Aaliyah Edwards is the type of prospect where I can see her coming in and making an impact almost immediately. Elite athlete uh, for her position. She's six foot three, slightly undersized, but she, she moves so fluidly, sort of like a Bam Adebayo type mover in that way. Um, good roller, cuts hard. There's a lot of value in what she does at the WNBA level in terms of just having versatility on defense, being able to fit in many contexts on the court. But um, 
where are you at on um, just kind of just kind of flip this over to um, Philia? Sort of a different idea, but similar enough. Just modern skill sets um, in the WNBA right now. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about with all three of these players, people who you know don't necessarily profile as 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 median all stars because there are questions about their game uh, in which aspect they fit in. For Tania Latson, it's at her height, can she? Uh, at her height, does she either develop more on-ball defensive skills, or does the or can she, you know, even be impactful as a help defender, which she has good instincts uh, off the ball? With with Edwards, it's we know how good it can look if she hits like Bam Adebayo, but at six three, is the WNBA going to allow her to be that size at the five, or be her, or be sort of not have a jump shot at the four? And I think with Layla Filio, we have someone who, based on the limited sample we had this year, um, if it was just this season, we'd easily have her at least at a 60. But she, again, we have another player who missed basically like a month and a half in the middle of the season, and someone who also <laughs> didn't quite put up the numbers the, the freshman year. Um, but she is someone obviously to keep an eye on because she's someone who shot 40, she shot about, she shot 45 from the field this year. 40 from three, over 40% from three, and over 80% from the line, which are great numbers. As someone whose specialty is defense, she scored over seven, she scored, I want to say it was somewhere in the range of like 17 of the high teens points per game for a Michigan team in which she was uh, one of only two real shot creator go-to scorers. And again, she's known for her defense, and she's known for her defense for a, for a dang good reason. When in early January, Iowa and Michigan played. She was the primary defender of Caitlin Clark, and Caitlin Clark was frustrated with her. Caitlin Clark shot up, shot about only one for three from three with, with Philia in primary coverage, and her only two-point scores were a couple cuts and some great passes. And again, we're talking about Caitlin Clark here. Just holding her to less than 15 points is a miracle in and of itself. And Lila Philia is just the kind of defender who has the energy to go about that she's incredible sticking uh, both on ball and off ball the, the level of the disruption she has about following is truly unbelievable and again this is one of those players where it's not so much about where do we think they can develop but it's can they maintain this level of consistency yeah and i think Felia has even an even higher ceiling if she can add a lot of that on ball offense uh, she's shown flashes of pick and roll playmaking and uh, being able to hit pull-up jump shots, her form is immaculate when she's shooting. Like, it's so pure when it comes out of her hand. And uh, the way that she has shown those flashes is really, really intriguing for somebody who is an above-average defender uh, and really strong and just kind of profiles as the modern, ideal 3-and-D wing kind of. And yeah, our entire list will be available uh, 1 through 22 at thenexthoops.com this week. But I know there's a couple of players we want to touch on in this next range. So let's just talk Maddie Shear real quick. Um, on public boards, and we've seen over the last week after the draft, her name I don't think has been mentioned like once on any of these boards. So, um, M, what do you see here? The best way I can describe Maddie Shear. And I'm I'm a full tier higher on her than you are. So, mm -hmm. so this opinion reflects the opinion of M Adler and not the next scouting unit as a whole. But the, the best way I can describe Maddie Shear is she is what South Carolina fans want you to believe Bree Beal is. She is a hell of a three point shooter. 
Her form is sensational and she's hitting at a high rate. Her wing defense, in my opinion, is truly superb. The way she's able to both provide extraordinarily impactful uh, one pass away help defense while also sticking really, really well uh, on threes and twos of, for the most part, any sort, disrupting them excellently. She shows a heck of a lot of flashes too of on ball scoring on the offensive end, which is to say nothing of the fact that she's also a quite a good pick-and-roll pocket passer. You have someone here who... <clears throat> sorry, you have someone here who can basically do mo almost anything you want her to do on the offensive end. The main issue is, for me, the, the volume. You know, she's in her first year outside of the Kelly Graves system, which we... And, you know, there is an adjustment system. There, there's just a period going from one of the worst possible developmental contexts in the Power Five to literally anywhere else. So it'll be interesting to see where her usage goes next year. And, you know, that I think for me kind of, kind of is the question I know. And I know it is for you as well of whether we're talking about someone who's very good in the role or someone who can actually direct it part of an offense. Yeah. Then also Lincoln, is there anyone else in this range from anywhere from 11 to 22 that you, you want to talk about? Um, I would, I really enjoy watching Sonia Rivers play basketball. She's oh, an elite yeah. athlete. She's awesome uh, with the ball in her hands inside the arc. Uh, the three-point shot is coming along. Uh, her form inside the arc looks great. She is one of the most impressive defensive playmakers in college basketball right now. Uh, she gets in passing lanes. She has uh, verticality and athleticism to contest at the rim. And she has the athleticism and the uh, lateral quickness to hang with quicker guards moving laterally uh, and can guard just about anyone on the court at 6'1 with long arms and incredible movement skills. Her offense is a little bit behind that, but uh, it's definitely coming along. And I think that uh, betting on that kind of athleticism, defensive playmaking, and uh, upside as a ball handler is something that a lot of WNBA teams do. Is they look at athleticism, playmaking, and ball handling, and that's exactly what you're looking at with Sonia Rivers. And this another is sort of what we talked about. Like Cody, another player who, like Cody McMahon, continuously improved over the course of the season to the point where I think we don't know what her ceiling is. Like, like we're looking at her and we can try to project her. But frankly, she is in she's in the kind of place where we're projecting still some level of improvement, as you said, with a jumper. But like she could go in a bunch of different directions. And she, this guy is really the limit for her. She could end up being an excellent slashing point guard somehow. She could also end up being a 3 and D. She could end up being uh, basically the, an even better version of what I was just describing with Philia. Who knows? And that's sort of the theme of this episode um, in general. There's so many different pathways for so many different prospects. And at this point, like we might run this back next year and do the exact same exercise and our evaluations might change a little bit. It's free flowing. Stuff can change. Evaluation can change. And with someone like Sanaya Rivers, we talked about it with Jordan Horston. Her game developed so much from where she was making a bunch of ill-advised Ill mistakes like at, at Tennessee to where – in end of her college career, she was phenomenal. We saw some of the decision-making stuff getting cleaned up. 
And um, there's there's a lot of upside with her. Another point on the list, uh, we're not going to get a chance to go through it uh, super deep, is Kiki Rice from UCLA and some of the stuff she does as like an on-ball creator, uh, downhill slasher, passer um, sort of thing. So, so yeah, thanks for making the ones basketball your first listen today. And I make your second listen game-to-game NBA. Every moment, every top performance, every result. Locked One Game-to-Game covers every game across the NBA with local analysis that only Locked One can deliver. Follow Game-to-Game on Locked One NBA, available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts.